Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to, nice to be here, nice to be together as always. So as you hear, that's the part one of the message, and the conclusion of the message will be on the Day of Atonement. And to me personally, that's the most difficult subject that I ever spoke about. It probably might be one of the most controversial subjects subject that will probably ever touch. And I want you to pay attention, and I want you to follow what I'm trying to show you. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 27, 46. I'll show you a quick clip just to visualize this moment. And this clip comes from the movie, from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ. I don't know how many of you watch it. But it's a very, I would say it was a very good movie. There was so much violence. We can imagine what the crucifixion, the process of crucifixion, what was really about how the victim had to suffer just going through the punishment of crucifixion. Just watch the clip first. Last moment, last seconds of Jesus Christ when he was alive, he spoke these words. Father, why have you forsaken me? My question is, is that true what most Christianity believe? That this moment, at this time, God the Father really forsook his son on the cross. But just before we go into this, you know, presentation, I want to show you some all the major religions, what they believe about this moment, about this time, what most of the religions believe about it. Let's look at the f- next slide. Let's look at the Baptists, what the Baptists believe. So I, I projected the words will be easy to follow. When I read them, <clears throat> it will be easier for you to understand. So they said basically about the same clip that comes from Matthew chapter 27 right here in verse 45. You know, that's exactly the same word what Christ said on the cross, right? So what the Baptists say, what they believe, he says, So because God's love for us, he sent his son to die to pay the penalty in our place. Jesus Christ did what we could not do. And he just took the guilt of our sins upon himself. And in fact, in fact, he not only bore our sins, and there are some scriptures here, we'll go to the scripture a little bit later, But he also became sin. Jesus Christ became sin. A curse. And at that point, 
God the righteous judge look upon his son, our substitute, and so our sins upon him. And consequently, he, in essence, withdrew from his son. And they say he had to. As the bearer of our sins, Christ was, in effect, the object of God's displeasure. Let's look. I'll show you just one of the, one of the Protestants. Let's go to the Catholic. What do Catholics say about this part? <clears throat> Paul described himself as ambassadors who comes to proclaim reconciliation. God is the initiator of this activity, and Christ is the mediator. Christ's mediation involves an inversion of status. Inversion of status. The sinless Christ is made to be sin so that sinful humanity might become the righteousness of God. You know, the same words, a little bit of different language. You know, the phrase a little bit differently, but the same meaning, the same interpretations. Now I want you to see what our mother church used to believe in the same part of the scripture. The word word church of God. So this comes from the Tomorrow's Word magazine from 1970. Someone asked a question, the same thing. Why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, what hast thou forsaken me? That's what they, without the same answer, look what the answer, what they gave. Few have realized that Jesus was actually forsaken of God, the Father, in, in order that he might be our Savior. For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. They give a scripture here. We'll go to the scriptures a little bit later. Second Corinthians chapter 5. When Christ took our sin upon himself, he became sin for us. It's a very strong language. All the sins of mankind of every age were heaped on him. And now, now it is sin that cuts one off from God. There's another scripture here. And because Christ, who never sinned, took our sins upon himself, he was forsaken temporarily of his father and allowed to die a horrible, horrible death. That's what the World War Church of God used to believe, and that's what I used to believe too. Is that true? Is that what really happened on the last moment of Jesus Christ when he was alive? It's a hanging on a tree. Did Jesus Christ become sin? Just think about it. Because we think that he took all the sins, that he was so sinful until the last moment, that, that, you know, Jesus, that God the Father had to take his back on him and walk away from him. Then if that's true, then my question would be, what or who or what blood cleansed Jesus from all the sins? Just think about it. Questions can go on and go on. Did my sin, past, now, in the future, did my sin have implications about the relationship of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ? Can my sin separate the relationship that they have together? Think for a moment. Can our sin collectively influence the relationship with what they have between one another? Can they really? So to answer this question and say, Jen is speaking about Day of Atonement. Yes. We'll have to go to the beginning. We have to examine the scriptures. 
will come to the conclusion on the Day of Atonement. You will see, you will be surprised what we can learn. Let's look at some of the scriptures that were mentioned here. Let's go to Isaiah 59, verse 2. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. But your inequities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. It's absolutely true. Sin can separate from the relationship that we have with God. Let's go to the Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. This one is a serious one. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be, and you notice that to be is in italic, so it's not in the original, no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We'll go to the scriptures a lot a little bit later. I'm just trying to read you just so you can see the big message, what's happening here, right? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So he put all the scriptures together. We came to the conclusion that I guess Christ becomes sin. That's why the father had to turn his back on him on the last moment of his life. So, you know, let's go to the, before the crucifixion. Let's see if we can find anything in the scripture, anything that can indicate that God at any point of time left his son alone in a moment that was crucial for humanity. God just turned his back on his son. Because that never, ever happened through all this process from the beginning, from the eternity. They were always together, never separated. Let's start with the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John, chapter 16, and verse 32. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. Let's look at Luke 23.
Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and look at verse 46. Last second of Jesus' life. 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Comfort of Christ. At this moment, he could say it. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What is the separation that we, that we were talking about? What is the separation between Jesus Christ and his Father? So, as I said, and let me just explain that, you know, the, the way around how I came about this message. You know, those of you who were in Myrtle Beach last year, we met a gentleman, Lenny Finley, who gave a beautiful presentation about the last great day. So we talked for a few days, we talked for some times, and, you know, forward and back with some different ideas. So I asked him about what he thinks about the two goods in the book of Leviticus 16. And then he started questioning me, question after question after question, that I was shocked that all this question exists. And he sent me over some online, some materials to study, and just, you know, just to compare some scriptures to scripture. And I just couldn't. I have to, I have to, brethren, to present it to you just to see what, you know, we're going to be all in one agreement, you know, because he was right. He was right. When we do all these studies, you know, we're going to answer two goats, who is one, who is the other one. We're going to see the sinners offering all this other stuff. And I hope that, you know, we won't have to this discussions, especially using logic. You know, I think this goat is this, and I think this goat is this, you know. And logically speaking, the reason must be this, and must be Christ, or must be Satan, must be this. I think when we go through all this study, Bible study, when we go from the beginning to the end, I hope that the answers to this question will come naturally. I will never, ever, ever debate it. So let's, you know, as I said, this Bible, two testaments, they're in total agreement. The one cannot contradict the other, no matter which way. You can, cannot contradict the old one. The old one cannot contradict the new one. There's, you know, union between these two. It's the one's got Holy Scripture. So we have to go to the beginning. We have to understand from the big biblical point of view, we have to understand the sin offering that happened in the Old, Old Testament. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Just to answer this question. If Jesus Christ was forsaken by his father. Because he was a full contaminated with sin. Leviticus chapter 1. And verse 1. Right here, we spend, we're going to spend you know, a lot of time here in the first few chapters of Leviticus. Now the Lord called to Moses personally and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, in this case we talk about the burnt offering, any offering but a burnt offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of lives, of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. It doesn't matter from which, verse 3, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own 
free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Without blemish. If the sacrifice at least have a one blemish, it's not acceptable to be offered, okay? Without blemish, keep it in mind. Jesus Christ was without blemish, right? Without blemish. Leviticus chapter 3. Now, in this case, it's a peace offering. But it's the same thing, basically the same thing all over, all the sacrifice in the Old Testament. When his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. If he offers of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it again without blemish before the Lord. Without blemish. He cannot offer anything that was blemished, that was injured. Leviticus chapter 4. Now we talk about the sin offering. Sin offering and trespass offering. And in this particular case, when it comes to the sin offering, God made provision, no matter from what social class you were in Israel, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are middle class, there was always for God's people to offer something they were able to afford. But there was always a cost. Let's look here. Uh, chapter 4, look at verse 3. And in this case, he speaks about the, about the priest. If the anointed priest sins and brings guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for sin, which he has sinned, a young bull, and the same thing, without blemish, without blemish as a sin offering. And just go back to verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a person sin, so in this case we're talking about the sin offering, not just you can offer an offering for any sin. No, this case, look here in verse 2, unintentional sin. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a person sin unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord, in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if they, and then, then we go through all this chapter, as you can see, it's a long chapter, and, you know, talking about the social class and different sacrifices, it depends where you're standing in the, in the social society back at that time. But, you know, like as you read for a priest here in verse 3, it was a bull. And let's say in verse 13 and 14 here, that was for the whole congregations. Let's read the verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done, and are guilty, verse 14, when, this, when, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, bringing before the tabernacle of meeting. So now we see about the you know, congregation. We can just go on. First, you know, another verse, verse 22 and 23, it's talking about the ruler of the congregation. When a ruler has sinned, verse 22, and that's something unintentional against any of the commandments of the Lord, his God, in anything which should not be done, and is guilty, and in verse 23, for if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he should bring his offering, a kid or the young goat, as a male without blemish. So there was a bull, there is a goat. And as we, as we will go, go on, now let's look at verse 27. Here, verse 27 and verse 21. If any one of the common people sin unintentionally, so we lower the rank, by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord, in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, 
Or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring us his offering. A young of the goats, a female without blemish. So the value comes down a little bit. It depends what your status in the society. But, you know, just to cut to the point for the poorest people, chapter 5 and look here in verse 7, it says if he is not able, chapter 5, Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 7, it says if he's not able to bring a lamb, that she will bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves of two young pigeons, one as a sin offering and the other as the burden offering. So as you can see, for everybody in a social class, not, the poor, not all the poor people could afford to bring a bowl to the sacrificial system, right? So God offered everybody a break. He says, if, you, if you're poor, you can afford to turtle doves and, you know, be, be forgiven for the sin. Now, something else that very important that happened when they were sacrificing all these animals. Leviticus chapter 4, and look at verse 3 here. Actually, verse 29. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 29. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering, then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. What happened in that moment when the worshiper came to worship and he put a hand on an animal? So I want to show you what one of the commentaries, Adam Clark's commentary, I'm going to project this. It will be a little bit easier to read for you. What happened at this moment? What people back then understood when they lay hands on an animal, poor animal, unblemished, pure, clean animal? So by the imposition of hands, this is Adam Clark's commentary, by the imposition of hands, the person bring them, the victim acknowledge. And here's number one point. The sacrifice as his own, you know, something that was dear to him and it cost him something. It was price to pay for your sin. It cost you something, right? That he offered it as atonement for his sins. Atonement for his sins. That he was worthy of that because he had sinned, having forfeit his life. By breaking the law. And the last point. That he entered God. Then entreated God. To accept the life. Of the innocent animal. In place of his own. And. Every person in the Old Testament. That came to offer an animal. Basically that was the understanding. What they were doing. They knew they were the guilty party. This animal is not a sinner. This animal is the agent to clean their sin. Think about Jesus Christ. Because all believe that Jesus Christ becomes sin for us. We'll come, to, we'll come to that point a little bit later. Now I want you to show another slide. This time it's from the book The Temple. I think probably the gentleman we all know. And show the next one, Daniel. And there is a prayer. 
that is recorded in this book. I don't know how truthful it is or how it's just based on some of the Jewish beliefs. So I can say it's not in the Bible. Not any single prayer is recorded in the Bible. But to his research, he said, that's what used to be happening in the second, 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 second temple in Jerusalem. So that's how the prayer would go when you laid your hands on an animal. I entreat of Jehovah's. I have sinned. I have done perversely. I have rebelled. I have committed, and you name the sin, the trespass, or in the case of one offering, the breach of positive or negative command. But I return in repentance, and let this be for my atonement, or for my covering. Simple prayer, just like that. So as you can see here, three things are very important. Confession, repentance, and sacrifice. Compact. Confession, repentance, and the need for sacrifice. Why I'm showing you all of this? There is no a single indications in the Bible, and you can read it. If you find it, let me know. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. That the victim, that the sacrificial animals, was ever contaminated with the sin of the worshiper. Never, ever. If you find it, show me. It's not in the Bible. Never ever is there any single indication in the Old Testament that the animal become a sin. It had to be unblemished. So that's just the, the, before the process. Okay? Let's keep going. You see, it's actually the opposite. We're going to find out that sin offering always stays holy throughout the whole process. The sin offering never becomes contaminated with sin. Never ever. Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, look at verse 25. It says, imagine the holiness of the priesthood, right? Verse 26. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. If this animal is contaminated with the sin of the worshiper, how can, how can eat something like that? If the priest just touched anything that was unclean, he couldn't even come. To minister in God's holy temple. He was eliminated. He was unclean for seven days. He had to go to a purification process to make himself again worthy to walk into the holy place. Now, in a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. You can't just take sin offering and say, you know what, I'm going to pack in my lunch bag and I just take it home and I'm going to eat it at home. No. You only eat it in the holy place. Only priests were allowed to eat it. Think about it. If the sin offering was contaminated with your sin, it would automatically become unclean. Keep reading. Everyone, verse 27. Everyone who touches its flesh, wait a minute, must be holy. See it? Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy. Wait a minute. Do you see what I'm going with my presentation so far? And when its blood is sprinkled on any garments, 
just by accident, on any garment, you shall wash it. Then on which it was sprinkled, where? You can take it home and wash it at home? No, you wash it at the same place, which is what? It's just a holy place. You don't want to take a chance, take it home. And for some reason, touch something and become unholy. You can't. You're not allowed to. You wash it at the same place, basically. Now, Daniel, can you put the other slides there? The holiness of the sin offering. Let's go through all of that again. What we learned just from these few verses. Sin offering, it's the most holy thing. Sin offering was allowed to be eaten only in the holy place by the priest. No outside. Whoever touched the thing, like the priest, they also had to be holy. They have to be clean. They couldn't. Any, any unclean priest who was ceremonial unclean couldn't come and eat this offering or even touch it. Even come close to it. And as we, as we heard, even the garments were supposed to be washed in the same place. Never, never to be taken outside. The holiness of the sin offering in the Old Testament. So once the perfect unblemished sacrifice was dedicated to God, it became a holy thing to God. A holy thing to God. So we see the sin, any, any, any offering, any sacrifice was holy before, it had to be unblemished. It was holy during the whole process and was even holy after the whole process. There is not even one place in the Bible that shows you that this thing was ever contaminated with sin. Never. Impossible. On the other hand, Leviticus chapter 5. Look here for verse 2. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 2. If any person touches any, if any person touches any unclean thing, any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an, of an unclean beast, or the carcass of unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he's unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Think about it. How serious was for God the sin offering in the temple? It was the most holy thing. It would never, ever become contaminated with sin. Never. Ever. Now. Just to see a little bit farther. What happened with all these animals that were actually sacrificed. And put on the altar. Let's go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4. And here there's direct instructions from God to Moses about, you know, when we're going to pack the tabernacle, there's got to be an order of things. I want you to be very careful who's going to touch who and what and how we're going to fold this thing, how we're going to unfold these things. Not everybody is allowed to touch anything, right? Here in verse 4, Numbers chapter 4 and verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohat in the tabernacle of meeting. 
relating to the most holy things. Verse 5. When they come prepared to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So he's saying some parts that are holy in the, in the temple, only sons of Aaron are allowed to touch. No one else. But just keep down to verse 13 here. You can read it. You can read at home at your own leisure there and see what's happening. There is, you know, God is very specific, but it comes to verse 13. Look, it comes to the ashes, okay? Also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar, from all the sacrificial sacrifice animals. And look what happened. And spread the purple cloth over it. They shall put, they should put on in all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pens, the forks, the shovels, and everything they touch, the offering. Not everyone is allowed to touch it. This thing is also holy. And you take time and be careful how you fold this, how you put it together. You see what I'm saying, brethren? The sacrifice was never ever contaminated with sin. It was just the agent to clean the sin. Go back to Leviticus chapter 6. Just to be now very specific about this part. Look at verse 10 here. And the priest shall put on his linen garments... Linen garments, the same like on the Day of Atonement, okay? And his linen and his linen treasure, he shall put on his body and take up the ashes, take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Verse 11. Then he shall take off his garments, put on the other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to unclean place. What does it say there? To a clean place. Even the ashes of the burnt animals were clean. And there was a special place. And instructions were to put them away from the temple or from the tabernacle. Now, one, just, you know, I want to highlight the point one more time. Sacrifices were unblemished before. They were holy before. They were holy during the whole sacrificial process. And even at the end, there were just the ashes left. They were still holy in God's sight. Still holy in God's sight. Now, look, just go to Luke chapter 23. What happened to our Savior? Luke chapter 23. Now we're talking about here in verse 50. Luke chapter 23 and verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decisions and deed. He was from Armatia, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in the linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of this rock where no one had ever lain before. Was Jesus Christ contaminated with our sins? It's not biblical, brethren. It's not biblical. At least not yet. Maybe there is something in the New Testament. We'll find out later. 
First Peter. I, I, you know, as I mentioned, the whole Bible has got to be in an agreement. Cannot be the one part contradict the other. They all have to be in agreement. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. And look at verse eighteen. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. From your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you. The precious blood. He will never, ever, Jesus Christ never, ever become sinful of anything. Not before, not during, or not after. And the scripture that I somehow lost it here, but the one that Daniel read to us. Yeah, let's go to the scripture again. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 23. 24, and look at verse 44. Now we have some background information here. Luke chapter 24. And look at verse 44. These words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, will be written in what? In the law of Moses. We just read the law of Moses, right? And the prophets. We're not going to touch much prophets, but we know Isaiah, we know Jeremiah. We can go further and back. There are tons of scriptures. And the Psalms concerning me and the psalms concerning me so just go back to Matthew chapter 27 Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 46 And about, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, when you look at this, you may see like, yeah, Jesus Christ was agony, and he was crying to God, why God actually forsaken? Really? But when you look, there is a quote here. Right? And these quotes go directly to what psalm? Jesus Christ said that he's going to explain to them everything that happened in the prophets, in the law of Moses, and in the psalms. Is there any psalm with the whole Bible that starts with words like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Psalm 22. Is Jesus Christ trying to send us a message on his last moment when he's dying? Is he trying to point us to something, to a biblical writing that's going to open our eyes when you just go back there? Go back to Psalms 22. And just be mindful. There is no such a word in David's time as crucifixion. There was none. It's way before Romans. 1,000 years before the Roman Empire existed. Psalms 22. And we're not going to read the whole Psalms. But look at verse 16. Actually, let's look at verse 1. Psalms 22, look at verse 1. What does it say here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in Jewish writing, remember I told you before, in Jewish writing, like, you know, you go to the book of Genesis. The Jewish was named the book of Genesis, book of Genesis, because why? On the first few words of the book, in the beginning, they would name it in the beginning. That was the title of the book. When Jesus is saying, my God, my God, is basically giving you the title where you're supposed to go to the Psalms. What would you find in this, in this Psalm? Let's look here at verse 16, for example. Psalms 22, let's look at verse 16. It's the second part. They pierce my hands and my feet. Be mindful. 1,000 years before crucifixion, nobody even knew then what crucifixion is. Okay? Let's go through this Psalms, okay? So what I want you, before I forget, hold your, hold your hand here in Psalms 22, because we're going to go forward and back, because the Psalm 22 and the New Testament writings, right? Hold your place here. And let's go to Matthew. Hold your place in Psalms 22. And go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and look at verse 39. And those who passed by, when Jesus Christ was hanging on a tree, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. You are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have, if, if, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him, Revile him. Revile him with the same thing. Hold your place here in Matthew. Go back to Psalm 22. Go to, go to Psalm 22. Let's keep reading these Psalms here. Let's bring it into context. Uh, let's start with verse 6. But I am a worm, and and no 
men, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me, radical me, they shadow the lip, and they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delighted in him. Wow. That's just the one little piece there, brethren. What is Jesus crying? When you were at the cross, and let's say you say, My God, my God, you go back home and you start reading this psalm. Crucifixion comes to mind. Every single detail of what happened in Jesus Christ's last moment, everything is in here in Psalm 22. Let's look at some other evidence. Hold your place here in, in Psalm. Matthew chapter 27, again. Look at verse 27. Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole gardens around them. One man. They took whole gardens to protect him. One man. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Go back to Psalms 22. Look at verse 12. Psalms 22, verse 12. Many balls have surrounded me. Many balls. Balls, the power of strength, right? Strong balls of passion. They were the strongest in the Middle East. The biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the fiercest. Just like the Romans army. The strongest. So the balls of passion... Have encircled me. This word Hebrew encircled me can also mean crown me. They have crowned me. They have encircled me. They gave up me with their mouth like a raging and roaring lion. The whole garden is garrison of Roman soldiers. This one simple man. Go to John now. Hold your place in Psalms 22. Go to John 19. John chapter 19 and verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning. Hold on, I'm in the wrong chapter. 19, 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. Hold your place here in John. Go back to Psalms 22. Psalms 22. It was a very deadly moment for anybody who was crucified. You were dehydrated. You know, being there for hours in the sun. The thirst just to get a drop of water on your tongue, on your lips. Look here. Verse 14. Psalms 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water. 
And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a clay. And my tongue cling to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. He was so thirsty, he said, I am thirsty. Go back to John. Chapter 20 this time. John chapter 20, and look at verse, look at verse 27. He's speaking to Thomas here. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He still had imprints in his hands and his feet. What happened at crucifixion? Go to Psalms. Go back to the same Psalms 22. And we already read it, but just just do it one more time. The last part of verse 16. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stir at me. Something that was prophesied a thousand years to King David before the Romans even existed. Now almost detail by detail, almost, not all of it. There is still some future fulfillment here, but almost detail by detail. It's going to go back to John chapter 19. I will just do the last one. You can do the homework when you get home, and you can see it. You can see it by yourself. I'll give you just one last one here. John 19, and look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also a tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They set therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. And who, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And guess what? Where it goes back again. Psalms 22. Let's go to Psalms 22. And verse 18. Then divide my garments among them. And for my clothing. They cast lots. Brethren you were standing there by the cross. You were standing by the tree. If you knew a little bit of the scripture. If somebody would say. Jen you know what this man said on the cross dying. I want you to go home. And I want you to find it some. And I want you to read it. You know what would happen. When it happen to Let's say we would go home and read this psalm. Our jaw would drop down and say, oh my God. We fulfill everything what King David wrote here in Psalms 22. It's unbelievable. So you see, this psalm, this has nothing to do, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus Christ doing? He says, I, I want you just, I, I want to direct you to the writing, not just the book of Moses. I want you to go to the Psalms now. And see, Psalms, everything is about me here too. If you don't believe me. Everything is about me. Psalms 22. Now look at this Psalms. I just want to show you some other stuff. That is not fulfilled yet. How beautiful it is. Psalms 22. Verse 27. Verse 27. 
All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. Wow. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Verse 28. For the kingdom is Lord's and he rules over the nations. Not just Israel. He rules over the nations. Skip down to verse 32. 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Think about it. The people that will be born. We hear 2,000 years later and we're reading these wonderful, beautiful scriptures. So, brethren, in conclusion here, I want you to remember a few things when you go home because there will be part two. I want you to remember the Levitical priesthood and all the sacrifices, the sin, the sin sacrifices. And I want you to remember just one thing only. The sacrifice was never, ever contaminated with sin. Was never, ever contaminated with sin before. Was never, ever contaminated during. And was never, ever contaminated with sin after. As we read in the scripture, this was the most, not just holy, this was the most holy thing for God. And this most holy thing for God is no one else. But Jesus Christ. And you will say, Jen, but what are the scriptures, scriptures that we just read? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. We'll come to it on the Day of Atonement. So may God be with you. And thank you for being patient. And remember, if you have any questions, don't be afraid to ask. And remember, the conclusion is coming. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.